وان تو ثري اوكي اول جود محمد ذات زود اول جود ليتس جو اوكي هلو ايفريون اور جيست توداي از بريتش بنغلاديشي دكتور ان فيلوسوفي اند سينيور ليكتشرر ان كيمينولوجي ات برمنغهام سيتي يونيفرسيتي هي از ذا اوثر اوف ذا هوموسايد اند اورجنايزد كرايم اند كو اوثر اوف بريفنتينغ سيكشوال هارم هي از ميديا كومنتاتور creator and host of the story podcast please welcome dr muhammad rahman dr muhammad rahman i am very very happy to have you here today how are you i'm doing great thank you very much thank you for having me this is a great platform <laughs> thank you <laughs> uh, i really like your book by the way i urge everyone to to go and read it could you tell us more about your future future podcast My future podcast, which I'm hoping to start in spring 2022, is called The Story Podcast. And the reason why I've decided to call it The Story is because everybody has a story. Everybody has something that they can share with one another that's quite profound. And ever since learning began, learning in many ways is often achieved through storytelling. We tend to hear stories from young people, people that are of our age, um, the elderly, our parents, our grandparents, and often these stories shape us and they kind of help contribute towards our understanding of how we go about navigating ourselves mm -hmm. in society, in community, in cultures. So what I'm planning to do is hopefully set up a podcast Um, and invite guests who have profo profound stories to share mm -hmm. so that it kind of encourages individuals, motivates individuals and inspires individuals to go on to do great things for society, for themselves and for people around them. So that's what the podcast is all about. Yeah, sounds amazing. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, how did you discover your passion uh, for criminology? My passion for criminology started way before I got into um, the academic side mm -hmm. of criminology. It started in the streets uh, based on my observations of crime. I come from a background um, of living in inner city communities, um, largely in northwest Birmingham, mm -hmm. areas such as Hansworth and Winston Green. And these areas tend to have a lot of... Um, socioeconomic deprivation mm -hmm. subsequently results to um, marginalized cohorts, crime, deviant behavior, transgression. And I've been witnessing crime from a very young age. Mm -hmm. um, parents, what they tend to do is shelter their kids and make sure that they're not exposed to crime. And my parents did that for the most part, but it was unavoidable given where we lived. Mm -hmm. There was always crime. There was always some form of harm that was being done to someone. And from a very young age, I was able to question certain things. And one of the things that I always questioned was, why is it that some people do bad things? Why is it that they do things that end up hurting someone, mm -hmm. which results in themselves being hurt, uh, whether or not they end up being arrested, um, charged, convicted, end up in prison? Why is it that people have the need to hurt one another and mm -hmm. commit crime? So. That kind of progressed as I grew older. Um, there weren't necessarily many improvements in the areas that I was living. You know, the government in this country 
became very stringent when it came to finances in communities, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, youth clubs and community hubs, which once helped young people stay away from crime, started to close. And then you had a proliferation of new crimes coming in, gangs, knife crime, drugs. So I was exposed to this from a very young age. And mm-hmm. I used to hear about it, if not on the streets in school, if not in the streets and in school, then I'd hear it outside in other socializing settings. And my first degree was in forensic computing. Yeah, so I was about to ask you about this because when you read, when I read your book, uh, Homicide and Organized Crime, yeah. I don't want to spoil the book, but uh, there is, yeah, we, we can, we, we know that you have uh, some computer skills. I don't want to yeah, go into more details. Yeah. <laughs> so in the book, it talks about how um, in the opening few pages, how I was taken into a car, virtually kidnapped. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Some yeah. skills that I developed when I was a young kid. <laughs> I had a passion for computers, technology. I'd, you know, uh, on my road growing up between the ages of 10 and 21, when I was in my early teens, we didn't have a front garden. So mm-hmm. as soon as you open the front door, that's it. There's the pavement and there's the road. Yeah. Um, so we lived in an area that was quite de- deprived. Um, and then I just take out gadgets. I'd take out computers and I'd unscrew and I'd literally dismantle the whole technology and then build it together, build it back again. And people wow. in the area would observe this. They wouldn't do anything to me, but they'd observe this. And later on, um, some devious individuals in, in, in my area realized that I had some skills mm-hmm. and they were involved in robberies and theft and they needed help when it came to unlocking certain technologies that were blocked by the police or blocked by the organizations that they robbed. Wow. So um, <laughs> that's mentioned in the book. But my first degree is based on my passion for technology. And forensic computing is a degree that focuses on the study and the investigation of anything that's technological that holds data. Mm-hmm. So there's a crime side of things. Mm-hmm. And then once I did the degree, I worked for a while um, in computer-related jobs. And then I realized that my knowledge and my intellect about crime was one of two things. It was either based on what I learned in my degree, mm-hmm. which was very limited because it's focusing on computers, mm-hmm. or it was based on what I knew in the streets. And what I knew in the streets was way more informative than what I learned in three years at university for mm-hmm. my bachelor's. Then I decided to do a master's in criminology. And that master's in criminology kind of opened up my eyes on a theoretical level, mm-hmm. and I was able to apply some of the knowledge that I gained um, based on my socializing experiences when it came to the course. And that course was quite interesting because it only had 10 students. I was one of few that came from a non-criminological background. You had a lot of police officers, um, senior criminal justice professionals, undergraduate students that studied criminology and Mm -hmm. I was the only one that came from a computing background so I got through it and um, then went on to do a few few other qualifications Um, so I've always had a passion and an interest in many ways as morbid as it may seem about crime okay what saved you because you you seem to have grew up in a very risky neighborhood yeah I mean what saved you because all the people around you seems to had a, a very like let's yeah, say it's a, it's a not a usual one. path it's difficult to say i don't think one particular thing saved me but if there's one thing that comes into mind it's my parents mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so mom and dad yeah 
very strict with me, very loving, very caring, very hardworking. Both of my parents are very hardworking. I mean, we, we came from a background that was marginalized and deprived, but we made the best with what we had. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my parents, especially my dad, a very hard worker. And mm-hmm. I think I get my work ethic from him. Okay. Um, the thing that he tells me to do is to work smart and not work hard. Because when you work hard, you burn out. When you work smart, you can do more. So parenting is number one, I think. And this is quite psychological and criminological in many ways as well. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. this is what we tend to talk about in class when I'm teaching, when I'm lecturing. Which is that parenting styles is also quite important. So it's mm-hmm. not about just having parents. Anyone can have parents. Of course. Even cats and dogs can have parents. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the approach that you take with your kids, which is key. But then having said that, even if you do have the best of parents that have the best intentions for you, that give you everything that you need, you can still be led astray. This still kind of confuses me as to why I wasn't in the mix necessarily. But I tell you why I wasn't so much in the mix. It's because of my ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So my parents are from Bangladesh, mm-hmm. which makes me a British Bangladeshi. I was born in this country. And when I was in secondary school, between the ages of 11 and 16, for the first three years, nobody knew in school that I was Bangladeshi. Really? Yeah. What, what do you think is that? Everyone thought I was Pakistani. <laughs> ah, okay. I Based see. on my skin complexion. Yeah, 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 yeah. I see, I see what you mean, yeah. That's interesting, right? Yeah, it, yeah. So because... Race is a defining factor in everyday life. Yeah, that's um, unbelievable. Yeah. For the first three years, everyone thought I was Pakistani. So the Pakistanis, so my school was a very diverse school. Mm-hmm. Um, it consisted of an array of ethnicities, um, white, black, Asian, uh, African. And in year nine, in a school assembly, we were told to say welcome in our mother tongue. Mm-hmm. So every country, every nationality had a representative. So you started off with A and then B, B for Bangladesh. And then the teacher said, Muhammad Rahman, stand up. You will say, welcome in your mother tongue. And that's when everyone in school started ah, looking okay. around and realized yeah. that I was Bangladeshi. And I think that I- in many ways, the stigma that I received after was quite intense. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of racial stereotypes from people that were my friends. Um, those that thought I was Pakistani didn't really socialize with me afterwards. It was a bit weird. But at that time, at that age, when you're young, you don't really think about race yeah, or ethnicity. Yeah. So I rubbed shoulders with everybody. You know, black kids, white kids, Asian kids. I just liked being around everybody mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. that's what my area is. The area that I grew up in is very diverse, very multicultural. And I think after school... Um, Certain things would happen. You'd go home with your friends. You'd do certain socializing experiences, deviant behavior, graffiti, whatever it may be, <laughs> right? It happens. Yeah, of course. And I, I was kept away from that a bit because of who I was. Yeah. Um, and I think that had some sort of an impact. And then after I realized, as an only child, um, very quickly, from a very young age, I realized that I can't mess up. <laughs> you have a big responsibility. I have a massive responsibility, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. If I don't do well, then my parents don't have no one else to fall on. Yeah, I see what it's you mean. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the simple formula. Mm-hmm. So at the age of 16, after my GCSEs, which I still think were my hardest qualifications, um, I've gone on to do a bit more. 
the GCSEs were tough, man. Mm-hmm. They were very tough. But then after I got my GCSEs, I realized that I need to knuckle down and I need to start focusing and I need to start taking things seriously because if I don't, and I fall back and I fall behind and I don't get an education. Um, education is not be all end all. You know, y- you can live without education, but it becomes more difficult, mm-hmm. right? So I knew from a very young age that I had to educate myself to a certain level. Because if I don't, my parents can't fall back and say, oh, don't worry, we've got a second child. We've got a third <laughs> child. The fourth <laughs> child will do it. One will get into university. It didn't work like that. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. So I think that... All the focus, focus was on you. Yeah, 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 that focus helped me uh, stay away from individuals that were quite unsavory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. I understand. I think I have a better idea what saved you, actually, yeah. from, from very, very risky, tough neighborhood. Uh, where you grew up. Can you tell us more about your field of specialty? So I specialize in serious violence. Um, after getting my master's in educa- uh, master's in criminology, I decided to undertake a PhD. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to focus on serious violence, especially organized crime. And another form of serious violence is homicide, mm-hmm. the unlawful killing of an individual. So I fused these two criminology subjects together and did a PhD that focused on lethal violence and organized crime. Mm -hmm. And since then, I've gone on to do a bit more research on serious violence, focusing on sexual harm, Um, homelessness. Mm -hmm. So homelessness has increased in the city. In Birmingham, homelessness has increased beyond comprehension. It's really bad at the moment. And the homelessness that I'm talking about is rough sleeping. Mm -hmm. So I'm from the city and I remember as a young child, the only homeless individuals that I would encounter were located in city center spaces, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. subways and outside train stations Mm -hmm. and these kind of areas, right? Mm -hmm. Now, Homelessness has just increased across the city. Now you're finding homeless individuals asking for money at traffic lights, at roundabouts, um, door carriageways, in very dangerous locations where they can get seriously hurt. So there's a stigma attached to homeless individuals. They're considered to be unhygienic, uh, drug users, um, and there's you know unsavory things said about them. But they are victimized extremely mm-hmm. by individuals and there's a vulnerability associated with living rough mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been my latest piece of work but my work on organized crime which i'm returning back to because it's a field of study that i'm very passionate about has resulted in me working alongside um, professors um, professors across the world in the usa in scotland mm-hmm. uh, in denmark Um, and I want to return back to organized crime because I think there's a lot to be done. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Especially in the digital arena because everything's moving online now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. I don't know to start about the dark web and many other things, but... Absolutely. uh, Yeah, it's unbelievable how how deep it goes. It's, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> but uh, it's a very interesting subject, super interesting subject. Yeah, it's interesting Revolution. because, look, you've worked in the film industry. Yeah. And you know organized <laughs> crime is very yeah, salacious, yeah. it's sensationalized. It is. Uh, there's a glamour, there's an aura attached yeah, to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes across as a, a very um, appealing, attractive, and allure attached to it. But the reality of organized crime is it's committed by normal individuals. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Who live in normal neighborhoods, who have normal jobs, who have a normal family structure, but something clicks and something allows them to undertake certain crimes mm -hmm. that are continuous, mm -hmm. that are sophisticated, and it's driven by money. Yeah, They're yeah, interested course. in making revenue and then having that power so as to be able to start, maintain, and advance mm -hmm. criminal enterprises. So they see it as a business. Yeah. The individuals that I spoke to, even contract killers, hitmen, mm -hmm. individuals that are hired to kill a person, if you speak to them, they'll just say that they objectify an individual, their target is no longer human, they've dehumanized that person. Oh, wow, okay. And yeah. psychologically, they've been able to reframe their mind and condition it so that they see that person as just a capital that's economical. It's just a business transaction. But how much it costs to, to hire hitmen more in the UK? Do you, uh, do you have an idea? So some research was conducted a few years ago at my university. Um, and I think the average hit costs around about £12,000. £12,000 to kill a man? To or kill, yeah, yeah, to, yeah a human being. That's the average, yeah. So it it's ranges. cheap. Yeah, it ranges from £500 all the way to £100,000. £500? Yeah. Wow. So that's the value of human life in... Yeah, but I mean, at the end of the day, century. if you if you know the consequences, twelve thousand pounds. What you can you? I mean, in in, the, in yeah, London, for instance, what you can do with it with, with twelve thousand pounds. That's interesting, though, because the the case that was five hundred pounds that happened in London. Okay, <laughs> it's even worse. Okay, it yeah. happened in London. So, five hundred pounds in London, you can't do much with. You can't do nothing. No. You, in, I mean, literally nothing. Five hundred pounds, and you can't. I mean, you can't run the garage with five hundred pounds. I mean, it's yeah, it's uh, negligible. So yeah, it's unbelievable. Uh, how, how old was? Is actually there is no parity in the in the hitman world. It's m most of the time are men, right? Yeah, it's a it's a male-dominated crime. Okay, yeah. Um, when I say male-dominated, in the sense that the offenders tend to be men, mm -hmm. the victims also tend to be men. Okay. So it's male on male violence, and that's quite in keeping and consistent with serious violence, especially murder here mm -hmm. in the UK. Mm -hmm. There tends to be a close proximity between the offender and the victim. And in most cases, it's male-on-male -male violence. Is uh, psychopathic uh, behavior uh, her hereditary? There's, there's research out there that focuses on psychopathy um, from various angles. Mm -hmm. um, some will argue that it's hereditary. Some will say that it's not. It's... For me, a case-by-case case example, when people start throwing these words of psychopath and, mm -hmm. and narcissism, you know, there's so many ways of looking at narcissism, for example. There's so many types of narcissism. Of course. This is why when it comes to documentaries and media and you look at a particular case and you just kind of label someone as a narcissist or a psychopath, yeah. you really need to unpack and break down that person's background and their history. It's too simplistic in your absolutely, yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. Because this is this is a this is a clinical diagnosis of an individual. It needs to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, these kind of words are quite 
appealing and attractive for the media world. Yeah, of course. And they make uh, a lot of revenue as well as attention for the audience. But the reality of the matter is that these things can't be taken lightly. Mm -hmm. So you can't just say that, oh, it's uh, our psychopaths and registry. It's a case-by-case example mm -hmm. that you take. So hitmen are not necessarily psychopaths? No, okay. absolutely not. No, absolutely not. Hitmen are what Dick Hubbs, an academic, an author in organized crime, once described as individuals that are a rarefied niche within the criminal labor market. So these are individuals who have an appetite of violence mm -hmm. to kill someone. You don't just wake up one day in the morning and decide to kill someone. That's yeah. not how it works. There's a method to the madness, mm -hmm. so to speak. You need to have some sort of tolerance and a, a level of... Um, yeah, a level of tolerance to hurt someone. You, there needs to be a threshold mm -hmm, there of, mm -hmm. of violence that you want to inflict on someone, right? So no, they're, they're not psychopaths. Some some individuals that are that have been convicted because of contract killings mm -hmm. that are labelled as hitmen in mainstream media have no history of being a psychopath or anything of that nature. Most of the time, in order to make a good movie, you need a solo, solid pre-production. How do you plan your research before writing a book? There's quite a few ways that you can approach a research project. First of all, you need to be passionate about what you do. Mm -hmm. So the passion is always there, right? Yeah. Speak to a producer in Hollywood. And the first thing that they're asked is what inspired you to work on this movie? And it's something that tends to be quite personal, of biographical, course. reflective. It could be the fact that they went to a particular destination on a holiday and they got that idea from there. Yep, and then as yep. a result of that, they've done more research and they've been passionate about mm -hmm. that particular thing. So you need to have some passion. Um, I think when it comes to academic research, reading is key. Reading is important because with most academic research, you're required to undertake a literature review. Mm -hmm. So that kind of helps you understand what information is already out there about this particular subject area that I'm investigating. Mm -hmm. What are the academics writing about at the moment? And also, what are the gaps mm -hmm. that can be filled? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then you need to see whether or not you your research can contribute to some form of impact. Mm -hmm whether that's economical, whether that's societal. In my case, it tends to be society-based, mm -hmm. given that it's social research, social sciences. And then you kind of fuse the two together, and then you start working on a research question or a hypothesis, research aims and objectives. And then you identify who you want to work with. In some cases, mm, you work yeah. on your own. In other cases, you work with a team. Um, so does that all sound like how it would work in the film industry? It's close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If uh, yeah, if uh, it depends. Sometimes you need to partner partner with so other people, and sometimes you used to f do stuff yourself. But yeah. I totally agree with you. If you're not passionate, it's not possible. You can. I was saying only yesterday, I, w I sat in a job interview panel, and I was saying to a candidate, I said, I think this candidate was quite 
curious as to whether or not if she or he got the job, yeah. would they be able to do research? And mm -hmm. if so, how would they generate research ideas? The best research ideas tend to happen based on just innocent conversations. That yeah, you that's, true. that's true. Over actually. coffee. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or when you're um, standing in a corridor waiting for the print to go off and you're complaining about something and then another <laughs> academic comes. <laughs> yeah, that's, and then you start talking. True. Just based on human interaction. That's true, actually, because you you release yourself in a way. Like uh, Absolutely. You're, you're chill, let's say, or yeah. you're more comfortable because there is no boundaries. And you, yeah, okay, I can, let's say, speak freely because of that moment. So, yeah, you tempted to open the doors a little bit Yeah, it's wider. a humanized approach. Exactly, That's what it yeah, is. yeah, yeah, yeah. It I doesn't agree. need to be scientific. The work can be scientific. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The work can be empirical, but the interactions that you make yeah. so as to be able to generate that research idea need to be as organic as possible. How do you approach criminals to study and analyze their uh, behavior? Yeah, interesting question. I get that asked quite a lot. As you know, based on my background, yep. I've always been s surrounded by individuals that are involved in crime, um, behaviors that are illegal, delinquent behavior. So for me, I've got that insider currency mm -hmm. with certain individuals in certain communities mm -hmm. right so mm -hmm. some individuals that appear in my book mm -hmm. appeared in my phd appeared in my master's thesis and i've known for over 20 years for instance like clive like yeah. clive okay because yeah i just me open uh, sorry to interrupt you do you know who is lord clive no I don't know who Lord so Clive Lord is. Clive is the the Lord who invited inv in, in invaded uh, Bangladesh. So <laughs> oh really? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, sorry, I went too deep in my researches. <laughs> no way. So Lord, yeah, so you you've been in a way persecuted. <laughs> it's like hist history is repeating itself. That's so insane. yeah, it's insane. Sorry, uh, let go ahead. <laughs> no, no problem at all. Something new that I've learned <laughs> about Bangladesh. Yeah, yeah. So Clive is an individual that I've known from a very long time. Mm -hmm. Clive is, Clive was driving the car that I got kidnapped in. Yeah, in the right? in the uh, yeah when you yeah in the yeah. the book yeah. Absolutely. This yeah, is yeah. this in the early two thousands. Mm -hmm. And then I maintained contact with him until I moved out from that area in two thousand eleven. I okay. was twenty one at that time, mm -hmm. grown up. So that was never going to happen to me again, what happened back when I was in my early teens. Mm -hmm. But then when I did my master's, I went back to that area again. And I spoke to him and a few others. And I asked them... Whether Sorry, is it his real name, Clive? No, that's a pseudonym. Ah, okay, there. Yeah, okay. Beca because yeah, of okay, okay. Um, anonymity, confidentiality, privacy, and data protection. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Ethically, I can't use his name. Yeah, that's why I was asking. I mean, yeah, of course. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So I went back to him and he used to be involved in armed robberies. Right. This is an individual that used to rob containers m of money that mm. used to be transported by security guards from the security company into supermarkets. Mm -hmm. Right. These containers that yeah, they yeah, had, yeah. right? And the G4S individuals. So I was looking at the decision making process that individuals take before committing an armed robbery. And he told me all this information that I wouldn't have known had I had not known him. You don't as Coming back to your question, yep. you know, as an academic, you can't just approach someone and say, hi, you're a criminal. I'd like to speak to you. It doesn't work like that because what you've done is you've labeled an individual, you stigmatized an individual, and you've already 
strained relationships. Mm. You need to approach individuals on a human level. And that's what I've always been able to do. The work that I've done with individuals over the years that have got a criminal history, none of them have come back and said that my work depicts an inaccurate representation of themselves. Oh, they read it. They read Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. so what Amazing. I do is when I write about someone, yeah. before publishing, I show it to them. Oh, great. But this is, this, this is in print, right? Yeah, this yeah, is yeah. going to be in print for the rest of my life, their life. Can I? So yeah, I can show it to the camera. Yeah, yeah. Please go and buy this book. It's on Amazon. It's an amazing book. I really liked it. Thank you. Well, thanks for the um, shameless promotion. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. Um, yeah, so you're writing about people, right? Yeah. And even if it's not their real name, you've studied them for a very long time. Yeah. And people that they know, mm -hmm. that you know, mm -hmm. will also eventually read this one day. Mm -hmm. yeah, so yeah, you yeah. need to make sure that you're mindful and you're cautious of not only the audience that's reading the book, but those that were the subjects in the book. Because they're the reason why this book is the book. Yeah, of Without course. their narrative, mm -hmm. without their lived experience, without their information and their biographical um, information, this book wouldn't exist. But how do you know that whate whatever they're saying is true yeah. or valuable? Very valid question. Yeah. This is a very important question because this is where we come to validity and reliability. So what I tend to do is I triangulate. Mm. So I find information about the person mm -hmm. and then I see whether or not it's correct based on what other people have said. Oh, yeah, I see. Yeah, and yeah. then mm -hmm. I come across or I try to see whether or not the information that they've said about a particular case matches with what the newspapers have said. Ah, what the okay. Have said. Yeah, okay, okay. So there's always, mm. because a lot of the cases I investigate have already happened. Mm -hmm. So these murder cases, these cases of contract killings have already happened. Mm -hmm. So there's secondary information, newspaper information. As soon as you find out who wrote the news story, contact the journalist speak to the journalist and then from the journalist you find out who was the legal representation of the case mm -hmm. you speak to the legal representation of the case then you try to see if you can get some court documents find the court documents and go through the transcripts to corroborate mm -hmm. what the individual has said and what's been archived in the courts and then you make an academic judgment which is bounded binded by ethics mm -hmm. And then you come to a decision as to whether or not you should use this information. Fascinating. <laughs> That's amazing. There's a lot of background work. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, good. <laughs> nice work. At least whatever I saw in this book, yeah, it was amazing. Well Thank done. You. Thank you. I'm not a specialist, but I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hitman: The Game is one of my is, is one of my uh, favorite games. How close it is to to reality in your opinion? Nowhere close to reality. <laughs> Nowhere close to reality. I'm disappointed. <laughs> you know. Um, could you name a game that is close enough to reality? Oh, no, I don't know. <laughs> let me think. Yeah, sure. There are some games that don't focus on contract killing and hitmen directly. That yeah. are quite accurate of gang life. Uh, urban, urban street gang life. You know, 
I wouldn't say. Ah, it's a little bit like uh, GTA. GTA. Yeah, GTA. Yeah. Okay, GTA, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, do you know GTA was actually created in Scotland? I didn't know. No. Oh, yeah. really? Okay. It was created by I think some university students, white oh, wow. university students. Okay. Imagine you think it's quite American and hip. Oh, really? But actually, it's created ah, here I in the UK. Okay, okay. Yeah, and I think then Rockstar took it over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, wow. But GTA kind know. of depicts some sort of a gang kind of life, mm. but. If you're talking about hitmen and contract killers, the hitman game does not at all, you know, because this individual is uh, scientifically engineered to kill. And yeah. that does not exist, yeah, 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 first yeah. of all. Um, most hitmen don't wear a three-piece suit with <laughs> you know, a red tie. <laughs> and, and a tattoo on, yeah, on the neck. Yeah. A tattoo on the neck and shiny black shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And most hitmen don't use silences. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the reality. Yeah, yeah, no, um, no. That's why I mean, I wanted to clarify. And yeah, the other no. thing about it is, the games tend to make the audience or the consumer have this understanding that killings only take place in smoky bars and casinos and yeah, hotels. Yeah. But the reality of the matter here in the UK, people get killed on their doorstep. Wow, okay. People get shot, point blank range, and killed at their doorstep, mm -hmm. at supermarkets, in hospitals, uh, at their home. So... No, it's far from reality. Okay. Uh, do games like Hitman or films like Tarantino's, for instance, have a bad influence uh, on individuals? Some say they do. I disagree. I've lived on Tarantino movies. <laughs> Me <Scorsese>, too. <laughs> Goodfellas, Godfather, Casino. I used to watch them when I was a kid. <laughs> I think I watched God, uh, Casino. I was... 11 or something. I was eight when I watched Casino. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. came on TV. <laughs> and then I watched it when I was nine, 10, 11, because it'd always be repeated. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're like great movies, but... I grew up watching Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. Yeah, okay, yeah. All of these guys, Al Pacino. Um, some would argue, yes, that there is an influence mm -hmm. there permeating and seeps through individuals' reality. It's, it's there, but I would say no, mm -hmm. um, based on my own experiences. Okay. In your book, you talk about realism and ultra-realism. Can you please explain to us what it is? Yeah, so there's two types of mainstream realism in criminology as theories. There's left realism and right realism. And these are polit politicized theories in criminology. Mm -hmm. So left realists are individuals that would argue that the reason why there's so much crime in society is because of marginalization, mm -hmm. social deprivation, social disorganization, and that the government need to do needs to do more mm -hmm. so as to be able to stop these things because it connects with government. Mm -hmm. The reason why there's not a youth club in a particular environment and it's been shut down because of funding is because of a government issue. Of course. Not because of a social issue, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it is part of a social issue, but not part because of a community issue. A bit of both, I would a say. A bit of both, yeah. yeah. And right realists will argue that we need to be tough on crime. Mm. They're very conservative, mm. very right wing. Okay, yeah, right? Yeah. So it makes all sense in terms yeah, of the, yeah, yeah, okay. uh, the, the words. And they argue that individuals are rational mm -hmm. when they, they've got free will. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they're completely aware of the crimes that they commit. And if they commit a crime, then they should be punished uh, severely. Mm. And that doesn't work. Reoffending in this country is one of the highest in Europe. 
So prisons don't necessarily work, although government would argue otherwise. So that's white realism. And then there's ultra realism, which is relatively new. And ultra realists argue that criminology does not exist as a discipline by itself mm -hmm. because crime does not have an ontological basis. So it's quite philosophical. Mm -hmm. uh, ultra realists will argue that in order to understand criminal behavior, you need to use psychology, sociology, and other social sciences mm -hmm. so as to be able to get a deep penetrating understanding of harm. Yep. So that's ultra realism. Uh, ultra realists tend to base a lot of their work on class. Mm -hmm. So class is one of the ways that we're able to distinguish social inequalities. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I think that also needs to take what that also needs to be taken seriously alongside class is race. Okay. You know, race is a major defining characteristic when it comes to social inequalities. Not only in the streets, not only when it comes to crime, but just generally in everyday life. Right? Um, institutions, organizations, big organizations and corporations are bringing in race charters. They're focusing on how to make sure that there's equality, diversity, and inclusion. Yep. So, so ultra-realism, yep, that's what ultra-realism is, but I think there's a racial element that they tend to miss out. Sometimes minority doesn't have equal chance with the, the rest of the population. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's an issue for me because, uh, and uh, again, it's not only the government problem, in my opinion, it's the community's problem as well because of integration. We will we'll get to it uh, as we go along, but yeah, in my opinion, it's uh, it's it's an issue of both. The government is wrong and the communities are wrong because they're not pushing children to get to be integrated better to the society. Absolutely, without losing, of course, losing losing yeah, their, their identity. Integration is a key word. Integration is a key it's word. It's I, I find it super hard. I mean, across Europe again. We'll come back to integration yeah. because integration is very, very important when we talk about culture. Yeah, yeah, we we talk about it later. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think we portray many things as either black or white. There seems to be a lack of nuance. How much could could this affect our personality or behavior? It affects our personality and behavior profoundly. Mm -hmm. Just. Look at the question that you've asked, black or white. Mm -hmm. So it's either or. Yep. And then you use the word nuance. Yep. Nuance requires an individual to go deeper and further. Mm -hmm. And we live in this world and we live in this society whereby individuals just don't want to make an analysis on anything. Mm. They hear something on TV, they read something on social media, and they don't question it at all because that's the black and white narrative right there that we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Yep. So let's talk about Brexit. Yep. The government have turned around, the government's turned around and said that we need to close our borders because we need to have more control mm -hmm. of our territory and therefore we need to start revising our immigration policies. Mm-hmm. So people read stuff like that, and then it ends up in right-wing press. It ends up somewhere silly like Daily Mail. Yep. Daily Mail then talk about Brexit within the context of immigration and talk about it in relation to crime. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, 
people think, oh my God, we need to leave the EU because the reason why we've got so much crime is because of, Im of immigration. Mm, yeah. Like organized crime, for example. Yeah. Organized crime, when you speak about it, people think about the Italian mafia, the Sicilian yep. mafia, yep. the Albanian mafia, the Russian mafia. But people don't understand here in the UK, way before immigration, way before these mafias that I've spoken about entering the UK or entering other areas in Europe, organized crime has been around here in Britain, here in UK, here in Birmingham, yep. for almost, o or actually over 100 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah I remember yeah. your book. Yeah, It's yeah, woven yeah, yeah, yeah. into the fabric of yeah, yeah, white yeah. British working class culture. This is 100 years before the discussion of Brexit. So if you look at the history mm. again with nuance, you realize that Britain has its own legacy of organized crime. Yeah, the Birmingham gangs, the, the Peaky, Blinders, Peaky Blinders, yeah, the sluggers. sluggers, yeah, the slugger gangs. Yeah, Absolutely. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's true, actually. Yeah, it's more than 100. 100 Peaky Blinders, it's... Yeah, it was the sluggers first than the Peaky Blinders. But Birmingham... Ah, yeah, Birmingham gangs was uh, this at the same time as Peaky Blinders. They, they are the Birmingham gangs, Peaky Blinders. Ah, They're it's the same. Birmingham. Oh, yeah. okay. No, no, no. I, I know. I thought. I, yeah, I misunderstood something in your book because I thought Birmingham gangs. It's the name that's of a, a gang. That's a different gang. Yeah, that's a different gang. gang. Yeah, yeah, that's what I. Yeah, so that's what Peaky understood. Blinders are based in. Were based. Were, were based in Small Heath, which is um, that way, yeah. three <laughs> miles. And uh, the Birmingham Birmingham boys that I mentioned in my book were based this way, three miles. Okay. But all I of see. this was once consumed by gangland crimes mm. way before the albanians way before Italians. immigration and brexit and this ideology that we have that the reason why we're going so downhill is because of immigration it's mm. because of black and white narratives so yeah it does have a major influence in the way we start shaping and thinking about things for sure wow i didn't know <laughs> it was <laughs> i mean it was uh, it affects uh, that much uh yeah, our uh, our life actually. Simple question: What's a crime? Crime is uh, act or mm -hmm. an action that's unlawful. Okay. In that particular country or that region, that's what crime is. So if I'm a soldier, and I go, I don't know, I'm an Amer I don't know, I'm 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 French so soldier, and I come to. Britain and uh, I kill another soldier. That's not a crime. That is a crime. As ah. That wouldn't be a crime if we're in a war situation. Yeah, if you if you are in a war situation, yeah. it's not a crime. No, yeah, it's that's not what a crime. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, sanctioned yeah. violence. Yeah, 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 I meant legal I, violence. Okay, it's legal violence. Okay, yeah, yeah. That, so it's like such a thing. Yeah, yeah. So if a policeman kill an individual, uh, of course for good reason, that's not a crime. That's not a crime. No. Okay. That's not a crime because he's protected by law. If he feels as though that he's in a compromising situation whereby not only his life is at risk, but also someone else's life yeah, is at risk. Yeah, of course, that makes sense. Then of course, yeah. It but if it's, it's, it's still reviewed though. So this country is very good in terms of reviewing deaths that have happened in police custody. Now here's an interesting thing. So you've talked about the police in this yep. country and if they kill someone while on duty yeah while on duty so it's yes. always reviewed mm -hmm. there's an independent board that review this mm -hmm. but there have been some deaths in custody whereby it's clearly unlawful 
and that individual, the police um, man, should have been charged at the very least for the incident. Uh, that's not happened. Mm -hmm. So there is there is an issue there. How much crime is fueled by toxic masculinity? Hard to say. It depends on what crime you're speaking about. A lot of toxic masculinity is quite interesting as well because it's an area that is being researched mm -hmm. uh, within the case of domestic violence, uh, in the case of subcultures such as gyms and the use of steroids in gyms and fighting. It's very hard to say. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, but what I will say is this. Mm -hmm. So I train, I go to a gym, mm -hmm. I do weight training. And it's considered to be a very hyper-masculine environment. Yep. And toxic masculinity is often used as a reference in gym settings mm. by individuals. But as someone that's been using the gym for several years now, I don't see no toxic masculinity. I mean, I go there, I greet individuals, they greet me back, even if it's just a nod. Mm -hmm. And we just do our workout and we just go home. <laughs> and that's interesting because I was speaking to a colleague about this not long ago and he was saying about these terms, hyper-masculine behavior and toxic masculinity happening, being used in certain environments. Mm -hmm. But I don't think the gym that I go to anyway, it's not the most friendly of gyms. It's not a community gym. It's not somewhere that you take your dad or your mom. It's a quite grimy gym. Mm -hmm. It's run down. It's, you know, it needs a lot of work done to it. But these kind of environments also tend to attract unwanted attention, yep. such as individuals that are from criminal backgrounds. But everybody just gets along. So maybe there's a change yeah. happening that we don't know. Could you explain to us what uh, dashcam eth ethnography is? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, uh, dashcam ethnography is in my book. Um, it's how I went about investigating crime scenes Okay. for my PhD. Mm -hmm. So there's some cases in my book whereby killings, murder has happened in street settings. Right, so someone has died um, on a road or outside somewhere. Or there are cases in my book whereby individuals have driven to a particular crime scene mm. and killed someone. Mm -hmm. In some cases, it's both. Okay, I see. Now, just to give you an example, because my work again, nuance, it had to have academic rigor. Mm -hmm. I had to make sure that any case that I was investigating had to be 100% accurate in terms of the description that I gave mm -hmm. of how the murder took place. Okay. So in some cases, I either knew a police officer, a family member, or someone that was attached to the case that knew about the crime, okay. the murder. Mm -hmm. So what I would do is, with their help, whether it's the police officer, the family member, or a friend, is go to the crime scene mm -hmm. and drive to the crime scene. And in essence, what I was doing 
using the dash cam mm-hmm. in my car was recording footage mm-hmm. of me going to the crime scene, but also reconstructing some of the events that took place that night. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit filmmaking as well. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, yeah. So I would be driving, and in some cases, there were contract killings that happened that involved a getaway driver. Mm. So I'd position myself now as a getaway driver, and the, I- the person that I have in my car is telling me that this is how it happened, this is the road, this is where he stopped, this is where the person parked, this is where um, the killer got out. Mm-hmm. And what I was essentially doing was offering a reconstruction of events, but also building a narrative. Mm. So yeah. the dash cam was recording not only what was in front of me, but also the conversations that I was having with oh, an individual. Okay, yeah, and yeah, through yeah. their consent, I was able to use this information in my book. Because when you're speaking to someone about a particular case, if you're not recording them and we're talking like this for one hour, I have to go away then and then get my pen and paper and start making notes. Yeah, yeah. And by then, I may have missed out on yeah. valuable information. Of course, yeah, yeah. But what the dash cam does, mm-hmm. it not only records the event, but also the narrative, which I can go back to later on with reflection mm-hmm. and then using my work as appropriately as I need to. Yeah, it's that's what dash cam ethnography is. Yeah, it's um, it's it's super fascinating. It's a techno- technological way of yeah. conducting research. That's amazing. Thank you, thank you for cl- clarifying this. It's no very, very, very uh, valuable information. What organized crime and for how long have we been uh, calling it like that? The term organized crime came about in the 1920s in Chicago, the mm-hmm. USA. Okay. When the U.S. authorities were trying to apprehend an individual called Al Capone. Ah, okay. And Al Capone is a revered character in the organized crime world. Uh, in fact, recently, Tom Hardy did uh, a portrayal of Al Capone yeah. in one of his recent yeah. movies. I did not like the movie, but... Yeah. Oh, I haven't <laughs> watched it yet. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Yeah, and, um, I, I think... I know... I, know I can't say it in camera but i know why in my opinion it's not as great right the covid and many things but among other things but oh sorry go ahead okay. yeah right so Al Capone of course tom hardy is an amazing actor no, he's I great yeah he i've, I've met tom hardy once before oh wow like you setting, <laughs> in a gym actually nice in a sauna so <laughs> you know he's, he's great he's, his movies are great he's a great actor sorry i interrupted you no yeah. no problem yeah. at all yeah. um so Al Capone was involved in bootlegging, mm-hmm. so the supply and distribution of illegal alcohol, mm-hmm. because the U.S. had a prohibition on alcohol. They banned yep. alcohol for mm-hmm. a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and Al Capone did not pay his taxes. And then a U.S. commission, or a commission was set up by the U.S. Senate. And that's when the term organized crime was used for the first time. Mm. But way before that, we've had organized crime. We've had... Um, Highway robbers, mm-hmm. train robbers, mm-hmm. individuals that were involved in other forms of robbery, mm-hmm. but just the term organized crime wasn't used. Mm. So its emergence is from the USA in the 1920s, and now it's been used globally. And wow. alongside organized crime, if, wha- if an organized criminal moves from one country to another and he moves his product or service from one country to another, so if he does either or, that's considered to be transnational organized crime. Oh, wow, okay. So there's an international dimension to it as well. I see. Okay, okay. Are there similarities between the mafia in Italy 
uh, or North America, for instance, and UK gangs. So I spoke to an Italian professor about this many years ago, and I said to him, how do you feel about the mafia being considered as an organized crime group? And he looked at me in a way like as if I offended him. <laughs> right? He was so angry the okay. way I said what I said. He's like, oh, you British people think this and you British <laughs> people think that. And he said to me that actually the mafia mm -hmm. is more than just an organized crime group. For certain parts of Italy, the mafia is a way of life. Yeah, it is. It's a culture. Yeah. The mafia actually offer more than the state protect offers its people. So the mafia offers a lot to its mm. local people. And sometimes it's sorry to interrupt you. Sometimes it's more powerful than a council. Absolutely, local council. it is the council. Yeah, it is the council. Yeah. So he said to me that the mafia. Sorry, the reason why I because no. wha where I grew up in Corsica, it's similar. So we have we have the mafia. Well, it's it's less prominent, I would say nowadays, but it's called FLNC. It's in French, it's called Libéral National uh, Corse. Right. So basically, it's a. It's like freedom fighters, more or less, but it's a mafia. It's a mafia. Yeah. So basically, just for the li little story, they used to put like a, a big bottle of gas under, you know, uh, a wealthy house, and you and there is an envelope. It says if you don't pay 500 euros a month, you know what what can happen to wow. you. Wow. So yeah. This was when you were growing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's not as prominent as it used to be. But uh, this is mafia. This is a s uh, mafia signature. Yeah. And yeah, because I mean, my mom was kidnapped once. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah. Long story short, it's I know what you are saying. I, I exactly agree with it because I have an idea about it. In a way, it affected me from outside. I can imagine, especially if your mom was kidnapped. Well, I'd, I when when my when my, my mom was kidnapped, I was not born yet. Okay. But when she told me the story, and then afterwards we we saw the new, I mean we. We went back to the archives and saw the, you know, the newspapers. It was horrifying. It was horrifying. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, yeah, sorry. No, no problem <laughs> at all. So, yeah, this Italian professor, he was offended with what I said. said to me that the mafia is a way of life. And the mafia would, will commit certain crimes or certain acts of violence to send out a message. Mm -hmm. And they do it in a very business-oriented way. But attached to their business is a great amount of politics. Mm -hmm. So in North America or even in Europe, mm -hmm. in this country, for instance, organized crime is very, it's very um, societal. Mm -hmm. It's not political. Okay. So these individuals, these criminal entrepreneurs here in the UK are not interested in changing politics mm -hmm. for their benefit. They're more interested in making money and having some form of local power. Whereas in, in, in Italy, mafia they want to have both they want to have money power but they also want to I have see what you mean. a very political hand that favors them mm -hmm. uh, do you think crime will rise due to covid repercussions it has in many ways already okay um so in criminology just to simplify yes there's, there's something called the crime triangle okay so for a crime to happen Need to, you need an offender. Okay. He needs to be motivated. Mm -hmm. But then you also need a target, and that target needs to be suitable. Okay. That target needs to have some limitations. Vulnerable, mm -hmm. old, weak, uh, in some cases, 
young, mm-hmm. female. Mm-hmm. These are suitable targets, tentatively. And then you need an absence of a capable guardian. So no CCTV, no witnesses. Yeah, I see. Uh, poor lighting. Mm. So this is why a lot of crimes happen at nighttime, because of poor lighting. Yep. And COVID, in many ways, people wear masks. Mm. You can't see their mouth. You can't see half of their face. It's covered up to their nose. And all you can see is their eyes. Mm. And then they wear a hoodie. And if an individual dressed or appeared like that before COVID, people would just phone the police. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that COVID is here, this is acceptable in society Mm. to dress like this. And as a result of that, a lot of crimes such as shoplifting Mm. and crimes that have happened in supermarkets, stealing food, stealing drinks, that's increased. But here's an interesting thing. Why is it that in 2020, 2021, people in this country are still stealing food and drink? Yeah, it's unbelievable. I, I don't get this. This is not a serious crime. They won't go to prison for this. Yeah. But there's something about that individual that they feel the need to steal food. So there's a deeper thing here to consider. And again, it comes back to your point about not being black and white. Yeah. We need to think about this with some sense and nuance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is it to do with deprivation? Is it to do with marginalization? When the riots happened in this city mm-hmm. back in 2011, you had some individuals from professional backgrounds that were involved in robbing and looting. Wow. Nurses, teachers, ex-military. If you think about these people, they're overworked, Mm -hmm. underpaid, Mm -hmm. and they're frustrated. Same with certain individuals that are going through furlough at the moment, Mm -hmm. that have lost their jobs, that are finding it extremely difficult to keep afloat. Now they're all of a sudden shoplifting, robbing things that they wouldn't have done pre-COVID. So again, it comes back to my point about some of the social issues that we have in society. Mm -hmm. So COVID in many ways has accelerated certain crimes for sure. Uh, It's hidden some other crimes as well. So domestic abuse, domestic violence is happening more so now in the household because of lockdown. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. So that's a big thing and that's quite worrying and that's quite concerning. So there are some crimes that have increased, but at the same time, there's some crimes that have, there's some crimes, sorry, that have completely decreased as well. Mm. So nightclubs being shut down has resulted oh, yeah, in yeah. individuals no longer fighting with one mm-hmm. another while drunk and yeah, yeah, yeah. wasting police resources and the ambulance coming out and so on and so forth. So it's a bit of a balance. Okay. Um, how do we define a war crime? Interesting. A war crime is essentially an act or an action that is deemed to be unlawful during the period of a war. Mm-hmm. Um, that's essentially what a war okay. crime is. Okay. Um, how much immigration contributes to the crime rate in the UK, for instance? <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> Immigration, according to the government in this country, according to the government in this country, is largely responsible for a lot of crime. Okay. Which is absolute nonsense. Because immigration is the reason why that a lot of trade, a lot of positive change, a lot of doctors, nurses, teachers, lawyers, and other professionals 
are doing what they're doing is because of immigration. Mm. You know, so it's very hard to say as to how much crime immigration has contributed to. But then the question that I have is moving away from the immigrants, how much crime has contributed as a result of citizens born in this country? Yeah. Don't look at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, true. That's a good question. <laughs> uh, how we define a genocide or an extermination? So genocide is the eradication of a group, a cohort of individuals. Mm -hmm. um, so genocide, Rwanda, for example, yep. which is the complete eradication of a particular constituency. Um, I think Bosnia was one. Yeah, Bosnia. Bosnia was one. And I think at the moment what's happening in China, oh yeah, the Uyghur Muslims, yeah, 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 yeah. that's genocide 100%. You know, I find it bizarre that the international community is virtually doing nothing about these individuals who have been persecuted to the extent they're in these concentration camps, essentially. Mm -hmm. They're it's a holocaust yeah. re-educated yeah, yeah 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 it's a holocaust in yeah. many ways and the world is just blind as to this unfolding um so that's what genocide essentially is it, yeah and is extermination yeah, is the same similar yeah, it's an eradication, it's an eradication. yeah extermination is eradication yeah I, I don't know why i thought it was different meaning but it's like synonyms more or less absolutely what are the difference between the stoker gangs the picky blinders and the 21st century gangs uh, how did that evolve in the last century or so? Yeah, good question. Uh, slugger gangs are were individuals that were quite young. They mm -hmm. were involved in um, a lot of industry work, a lot of labor work. They were merchant uh, workers. They were machinery workers. And they just loved violence. Okay. They used to work um, in the city center. And they as a result of their work formulated groups and would often fight with like-minded individuals mm. with individuals that were a mirror image that were working in another factory mm -hmm. so there wasn't much business attached to their violence it was just pure pure violence okay mm -hmm. beating each other up okay okay the peaky blinders however enjoyed violence mm -hmm. but they were quite commercially driven they oh. were entrepreneurial mm -hmm. they realized that they needed to make money um and 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 by making money that would give them power mm -hmm. to do bigger and better things they would be able to take over more land they mm -hmm. would be able to set up more enterprises so they were very business-minded mm -hmm. and they were involved in horse racing okay so they um initially started off as an illegal betting mm. group who would take bets from individuals in the local community on mm -hmm. horse racing. And then they became legitimate. And then they realized that they had competition in London, mm -hmm. uh, Billy Kimber and his gang. And this resulted in them being involved in conflict. Okay. So that's the difference between sluggers and Peaky, and Peaky Blinders. Okay. Now the 21st century yep. organized crime groups tend to be quite international. Okay. So sluggers were local. Mm -hmm. Peaky blinders were local, regional, national. Extra extraterritorial. Absolutely. Yeah. And 
organized criminals in the 21st century are international. Mm. I'm going give you an example. Yep. Cocaine, for example, yep. is a class A drug. Yep. It's consumed often by, well, it's consumed not only by working class people, middle yep. class people, it's consumed by celebrities in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, cocaine ends up in a nightclub mm-hmm. in London, mm-hmm. Mayfair, Soho, wherever yep. it may be, or even in Birmingham. That cocaine was not made in London. No. It was made in the remote parts of Colombia. But somehow it's ended from one side of the world to the other side of the world. Mm-hmm. And that's because of globalization, the connectedness that we have because of increased modes of technology and transportation. Mm. So crime is now very interconnected. It doesn't necessarily work in fixed terrain. It's like, like a web. Actually. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a web. It's now been facilitated as a, as a result of local and global networks of opportunity. Mm. That's what crime is. So that's, th- that's, that's the difference between all three. Okay. Or one of the differences, I should say. Okay. <laughs> I could go on all day. <laughs> what does the word terrorist mean? Do you think we are using it efficiently? Do we know when we start using it? No, we're overusing the word terrorist. Okay. 100%. Um, I don't know if you've come across the line, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. No, I did not see that. So that, that tends to come up a lot in class when I use terrorism as an example of serious crime. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how we kind of think about terrorism, mm-hmm. especially in the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So ISIS, for example. Yeah. ISIS, if you read stuff, there's information to suggest that ISIS was around in the 90s, in the late 90s. Mm-hmm as a result of Al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. But ISIS really... Fragments, I think yeah, it's Yeah, fragments, right? Yeah. right? But ISIS really blew off and took off following the invasion of Iraq yes, in 2003. Yes. And that was a Western invasion. Yeah, yeah. And some still, up, in this, up until this day, deem it to be an illegal war. Yes. That's when ISIS started. So, in the streets, when I hear someone being called a terrorist, I've been called a terrorist. I've been called ISIS previously before. People don't know what they're saying. Mm-hmm. They have no clue whatsoever about the usage of these words because they have extreme consequences and repercussions, not only on a societal level, but also on a political level, mm-hmm. also on a legislative level as well. You know? but it, is it more, it's, it's more like a political world, right? Yeah, terrorism is based on politics. Yeah, exactly. It's actions and acts of violence mm-hmm. or um, the potential use of violence. Mm-hmm as a result of a political agenda. That's what terrorism is yep, in a nutshell, yep. in terms of definition. Mm-hmm. So definitely there's a political element attached to it. Just like genocide. Genocide is a political attachment yeah, to it yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, true. It's exterminism, but used, yeah, it's a synony- synonym yeah. of exterminism, but it's more like used in a political... It's in, it's in, it's, 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 yeah, it plays into the formation of the political arena, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, can culture dictate what's legal and what is not for instance uh, marijuana because for instance in canada it's legal in the uk it's not or in most majority majority of uh, european countries so does the culture define culture influences for or sure influence yeah yeah influence so marijuana smoking is a subculture yeah it's within a particular culture 
So you've got a culture of individuals that like to have a party. Yeah. But then that subculture is they like to have a party and smoke. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So culture does influence it to a certain extent. Because mm-hmm. culture seeps into everyday life. And it's interesting that you mention culture because some some will ask me, what is culture? Right? Culture yep. is what we eat, how we eat it. Culture is what we consume and how we consume it. Culture is based on what we um, speak and when we speak it. I mean, just before this started, you were speaking in French with your colleague. Yep. Right? Yep. Now, that's a language right there. But culturally, it's acceptable, you know, for you to speak French to your colleague in front of me. Yep. Because you know it won't offend me. But it may offend some people. That's true. Yeah. Because that's why some people say speak English. You're in an English country. You're in the open setting. You're in the city center. Speak English. Don't speak your own language. Culture is language. Culture is food. Culture is um, clothing. But I will say one thing. And um, sorry to go off on a tangent. No, no, no. But this is something that really impressed me a few days ago. So I'm British Bangladeshi. And... um, I have a friend who's also a British Bangladeshi. Uh, shout out Shaz, Shazan, if you're, if, you're, if you're listening. But this is a guy that's very well accomplished. Um, he has an amazing family. Mm-hmm. He's a lawyer. Uh, he's done really well for himself. He struggled a lot though. Mm-hmm. He struggled a lot. So I was in his house not long ago and um, we were at the we were having dinner together so it was me him his wife his two sons and his daughter mm-hmm. so all of his kids are under the age of 15 okay so one of his son sons is 8 years old and he's on my left the other one uh he he he's like 5 6 years old he's on my right and we're just eating with our hands we're mm-hmm. eating rice yeah. right and we're eating various like curries and so on and so forth and next to me there's this kid eight years old and he's eating with his hands the last time i saw or i witnessed a bangladeshi kid eight years old eating with his hands was me Ah, back in 1998 when i was eight years old okay okay i just couldn't believe it i just could not be i was so impressed i just could not believe it because we're expected in this country or in the Western world to eat with knife and fork, right? Yeah. But this is a kid who's eating one of the most difficult dishes with his fingers. And he has no problem at all whatsoever. That's part of his culture. Mm-hmm. But that culture has been eradicated over time because socially it's acceptable only to eat with a knife and fork, cutlery. Mm-hmm. But you as well as I know, look in the Middle East. We eat bread with our hand, right? Yeah, yeah. So you've got South Asia, East Asia, the Far East, Africa, Africa, and most of the countries in Africa, Middle least. East. Yeah, yeah. You've got areas like countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, yeah, 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 yeah. Philippines. What's that like? A third, two thirds of the world, maybe. Almost, yeah. Eating with their hands, freely, with no issues at all, because what? It's part of their culture, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. So culture is extremely important. And culture plays into the formation of everyday life. Now, culture, there's two things. First, you inherit it Mm -hmm. based on what your parents or people around you have taught you. 
Yep. And the second thing is you develop it over time. Mm. So this nephew of mine, he's learnt it from his parents. I mean, his parents are amazing. They're wonderful. They invest so much time in their kids and they've got chaotic jobs. But now, well, if his parents were able to do that for him, in 20 years time when he grows up and he decides to have a family, he wouldn't be able to do what he's doing right now. Or he wouldn't be able to show mm. the next generation. So culture is extremely important. But culture is often dictated by what is socially accepted in society. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, and yeah, assimilation and many other things. And, and that's where, you know, what we talked about previously before, assimilation and yeah. integration. Oh, you know, usually at home I'd eat with my hand, but because I'm with so-and-so and they eat with a knife and fork, I feel the need to now eat with the yeah, knife and yeah, fork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. How yeah. interesting is that? Yeah, <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> What's the difference between the difference, sorry, between Jihadi John, British Kuwaiti, and Anders uh, Behring, the Norwegian? Um, not much, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, to me, I they mean, it's the same. Yeah, but extreme ideologies. M the only difference for me, at least, uh, it's uh, it's one is domi domestic terrorism and the other is international terrorism, if you can say it like yeah. that. But yeah. I don't see any other, other difference. No, there's no other differences. I think the differences lie in the way they have been depicted in the media. Mm, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. the difference. Yeah, that's the difference, yeah. I mean, if that's a very interesting question that you've asked because they are mirror images in many ways. They've got different political ideologies, they come from, of course, different backgrounds. But the reason what they've, why they've committed the crimes that they have unifies them to a certain extent. But if you read the way that they've been portrayed in the media, that's where the differences are. Breivik is getting very good treatment by the Norwegian system because the Norwegian prison it's system amazing. is very, very... Advanced. Uh, in my opinion, it's super advanced. I don't know. Yeah, it's pro-rehabilitation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's not about retribution. It's not about punishments. I think they gave him a sentence of like 21 years. Yeah. Um, and that's the maximum that they can give. And he's got all the facilities that he needs to write a book, <laughs> to communicate with the outside world, to do all these things that you think to yourself that here in the UK, that would not be afforded by no means at all whatsoever. They, they see... Yeah, bigger prisons. Or yeah. Well, the Norwegians, the Scandinavian... Scandinavian in general, yeah. Exceptionalism is um, something that I've previously taught at university on the prisons and punishment module that I teach on the Masters in Criminology. And we speak about that model. And that model in terms of rehabilitation, reoffending. Because the other thing about offenders is eventually most of them come back into community. Oh, really? Oh, most okay. of them, well, not in the, U the US has a crazy justice system. Let's not even go into that. That's <laughs> that, that in itself is, a, is an episode. Um, <laughs> but in, in the UK, I think it's like something like 70, 70, 80%, probably more of those that are currently in prison right now will one day be released. Mm. So yeah. y you have to be forward thinking. You have to think about rehabilitation because they do have to come back and they need to um, re-enter, reintegrate, and that needs to be achieved through effective rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. uh, from what I saw, I don't know, maybe the little research that I made are wrong, but 
there is more more men doing crime or than women that's true yep absolutely i agree men tend to commit more crimes than women men tend to be more victims of crime than women as well women tend to be more on the victim side Mm -hmm. than on the offending side we don't have many female prisons here in the uk uh sorry england and wales i think the average distance from home to a prison for any female is like 60 miles or so so there's hardly any oh wow okay yeah there's hardly any prisons and 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 the prisons that we do have i think we've got one big super prison called hmp bronzefield and the others are very small stately home converted prisons Mm, okay they're not even prisons in the original sense okay um but there's previously been some discussions in the criminology world or the criminal justice world about women being given lesser sentences Mm -hmm. in prison Mm -hmm. for the crimes that they've committed and if that was a man for instance then the sentence would be far more higher Um, but I think things are changing I think women are starting to receive proportionate sentences but the thing about women women have a major role in society to play mm-hmm. women lose more when they're in prison than men do mm, okay i see what you so mean so they lose their children oh yeah true true right. children they, they lose their yeah. children they lose their home um they also in many ways lose time in terms of their biological clock yeah true yeah, yeah. men don't have that issue mm. men men have that luxury um but having said that one thing that i will say is that women in the criminal justice system here in England and Wales in some in domestic settings I wouldn't say the word are are more protected I wouldn't say that but in some cases they are favored Mm. in in the sense of a domestic setting because say for example in cases of a family dispute divorce the kids Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth but I think for the most part the criminal justice system in England and Wales is fair. Okay. And it is just. It is one of the oldest in the world, by the way. The English okay. legal system is one of the oldest in the world. But for the most part, it is fair and just. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you think there are so many serial killers in the US? Or do you think they are more documented visible or visible uh, in the media? The US is crazy. <laughs> I think we need an episode just for the US. <laughs> the US is crazy. <laughs> and I know and I know that's not the answer that you're looking for. But I swear to you, as a criminologist, yeah. the thing that I consume the most in terms of news are crime stories. Okay. Right? Yeah. So I come across loads of yeah, crime yeah, stories yeah, 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 yeah. every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like literally when I wake up in the morning <laughs> until I go to sleep, oh, wow. all I'm doing is consuming crime stories, whether it's about the offender, the victim, yeah, 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 yeah. the state. And I'll tell you one thing. And this is a joke within the friend circle that I have. Okay. There's some crimes. You don't need to tell me the location. <laughs> you don't need to tell me where it's happened, what city, who's involved. If you just give me a vague description of this is what I will say straight away, that's the USA. Wow, okay. Because there's some crazy things that happen in the USA and serial killing is a big thing here in the USA. Serial killing was actually a big thing here in the UK in the 80s as well. Ah, okay. Um, 
so we've got our own issues of serial killers mm -hmm. here in the UK, but in the US, I think it's more so largely due to the fact that a lot of us, oh, some, some serial killers tend to use guns mm -hmm. and America's gun control law is just terrible. Yeah, yeah They yeah. have no control over it whatsoever. Here mm -hmm. in the UK, we've got a very strict gun control mm -hmm. policy in place. Does, does that help? Absolutely, 100%. Mm. Yeah, killing someone with a gun is, I'm not saying easy, but it helps rather than, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, killing someone with a bladed object or something of like course, that. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, so I can't really say about the serial killing question, but what I do know is just things that go on in America is just unbelievable sometimes. <laughs> it even surprises me, and I've been studying this for over 10 years. Wow, amazing. Yeah. Do you think uh, you can judge the past with today's morals? me an example uh for instance uh in france we are famous to have the foreign legion okay the right. for foreign legion is if you are a foreigner for instance a british and for some reason uh, you want to enter uh, the the legion you can so if you are a foreigner you can join the the french legion and it's still active it's yeah, yeah, yeah. it's one of the best armies it's one of the best ar uh, armies in, in the world yeah. yeah yeah it's the more than 200 years old there is uh, more than 140 nationalities in the, in the Foreign Legion. So basically, nowadays, if you are like, let's say, did not commit a crime, mm. you can get accepted to enter the Foreign Legion. N nowadays. But in the First World War, they don't care. So they don't even ask who you are. They just change the identity. You are someone new and you enter the Legion. Whoever you are, it doesn't matter. Right. So yeah, in now it's more strict. Now they've got now more it's more much more strict. So yeah, it's it's. See, again, I speak to my friend Shaz about this a lot. Um, hindsight, mm -hmm. hindsight is a very interesting thing. Okay. As humans, we don't think about what we do today and the consequences that it has in the future. Yes. For the most part, for some things that we do, we do think about it like that. But in terms of everyday, day-to-day -day stuff we don't really think about the consequences in the future. Say, for instance, I leave this building right now. Yeah. And someone decides to give me road rage. Yeah. I'm driving and they've cut me up mm -hmm. or something. And then I start, you know, using my horn mm -hmm. and I start confronting them and arguing with them. And then we result in some sort of an altercation. That's very, very now, very impulsive. Yeah, yeah. There's no thinking about the future right now. Yeah, true. I've probably had a very bad day. It's been tough at work. I've got issues at home. And then all of a sudden, this guy cuts me up. And now I'm angry. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about tomorrow, let alone next week or next month or next year. So it's a difficult question because I think the past should be judged to a certain extent based on the morals of that time. Mm -hmm. I, th I don't think the past and the, uh, the past and today's or the pre the moral of the present go hand in hand. I don't think that works. I, th I agree with you because from my opinion, we should learn from the past, yeah, from the, those mistakes, yeah. but not necessarily judge it or let's say give... It uh, needs to be gadget. judged. It, it needs yeah, to, it needs yeah, to be yeah. judged because we need to make sure that we don't 
repeat the same mistakes. No, I agree with that. But we don't judge the people who did do did those mistakes back then. I mean, it's for instance slavery. Okay. Yeah. Something is done like five hundred, even more than that. We know that it's it's been there since human being stepped foot on this earth. So can we can we judge slavery and say that man is is not good and as we are doing now in many cities for instance i, I forget the name of the bristol the Colston. yeah exactly the could Colston we judge that i mean it w that that practice was legal back then right yeah but i think i think there's 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 a symbolic thing here to consider so slave masters they they were around once upon a time they're they still had, they but had anyways, slaves yeah. they had slaves they you know, tortured people, they exploited individuals. But what this country sometimes does is glorify these individuals mm, Yeah, yeah by yes. building a statue. And that is quite offensive for some people. No, I totally agree with that. I, I understand that it's offensive, but it's like we, we value a lot of people like Napoleon or whoever. Mm. But they colonized a lot of people and I'm, I'm sure they committed crimes yeah. back then, but... We don't look at those crimes. No, you can't. You can't judge it with by today's standards. That's, the th that's what I mean. By that's no what I mean. You can't. It's impossible. We've got enough issues in the present day. Yeah. <laughs> no, I agree with you. You know, we've got enough issues in the present <laughs> Too many. Day. Too many. <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> okay. Uh, one of the best armies in the world. We mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I'll just repeat it, uh, just to put the question in context. One of the best armies in the world is uh, the French Foreign Legion. There is like. Uh, there are more than 140 nationalities who are ready to die to for France. Do you think some government could get inspired from uh, this model of, of integration? Or do you think this is too extreme? No, I think the French Foreign Legion is one of its kind. Um, there could be similar organizations global south that i don't know about my knowledge about this area is very very weak but in the western world no i don't think the western world you know this is a this is a very interesting question though because i think about the middle east quite a lot when i think about the french foreign yeah. legion yeah because i think to myself why can't the middle east come up with like something like this so countries that are hmm. oppressed at the moment countries that may need help why aren't the middle east countries i don't know together. if i can say this but isis does something similar you said something like this similar right isis isis this, yeah in yeah, my opinion did something similar because we, we, we can talk because but we that's have an extreme branch though that's, it's that's completely that's extreme that's, that's on the other side we're but talking uh, about in terms of we're talking about in terms i'm of sorry i'm talking about the system oh the system oh you're talking about system yeah okay. because isis system is basis okay you are foreigner it doesn't matter as long as muslim it doesn't matter yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Because for me, foreign legion, it's similar in terms of the system. Yeah. Of course, ISIS, it's too extreme and we don't want this. No. But the system of the foreign legion is, is so, uh, I mean, sorry, the system of ISIS, it's in, 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 a, in a sense similar to the foreign legion, legion meaning it doesn't matter uh, to whom you, you, uh, you, you belong. But let me ask you a question. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. If the foreign legion is based on it doesn't matter where you're from yeah as long as you meet these requirements mm -hmm. welcome yeah has this not caused problems no as far as i know no i mean there is people who so basically it's a contract so it's a five years contract so as mm -hmm. soon as you enter there if you are french you have to borrow another nationality because you have to be a foreigner yeah so they change your name 
uh, your name, surname, and uh, yeah, you enter the Foreign Legion. Of wow. course, they have to check check record with your your country if you did any big offense or crime or war crime because you want you're not allowed to enter the Foreign Legion like that. Mm. And it's like it's like a religion, to be honest. The way how they work together is like they they have a, a, a huge bond between their brothers. You right. Know? So in a way, I, I know ISIS. It's a little bit not a little bit. It's too extreme mm. actually. But in a way, that's why I, I this is a question that I'm bringing for a little bit later. Yeah. So radicalism, mm. it's populated in my opinion, uh, based on identity crisis. Because you have identity yeah. crisis, so radicalism can enter from that That's door. That's you have a lot of converts. Exactly. That end up. So a lot of Muslims yeah. join ISIS because one of the reasons, I'm not saying it's the main reason, one of the reasons are identity crisis. Because you have identity crisis, you don't think, for instance, I'm French Tunisian. Yeah. I feel... You've got a collective identity. Yes. So if I, if I feel at some point that I don't belong to France... That I don't belong to Tunisia. At some point, someone, if I did not had, I, did, uh, I was not as uh, as as I am. This radicalism can and penetrate and yeah. crack crack something on me, and that's it. That is, it's the point of non-return. Mm. So this is how I see, in my opinion, of course, I'm not a research. I'm not. A, I'm not. But this is my humble opinion of. How I think, and and this in my in my view, this is the the country where you live and grow up. False. Well, it wouldn't work in Britain. It wouldn't work in England and Wales because of Brexit. You know, we're trying to close our borders. Ah, yeah. You mean the yeah yeah yeah. The yeah. approach wouldn't work here in this country. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's just a one of its kind. Yeah, foreign legion. It's uh, it's unbelievable yeah. in, in many ways. Uh, for me, it's a big example for many things. Of course, it's still an army, and maybe it's. Uh, the, I mean, but uh, I because I, uh, again, where I grew up, I grew up around people who. I mean, we have the the elite of the foreign legion uh, are in Calvi where I grew up. So I know a lot. I mean, I know a lot about. That's why I know a lot about mm. it actually. Mm. But in a way, I, I think ISIS is inspired from this way of could be yeah yeah if uh, recru recruiting people yeah. at least does ah yeah sure. you don't know f who to you, you I mean a simple question you know a simple question like for someone who have a identity crisis like uh, where are you from that's a simple question yeah, that's you know that's a simple question can cause a lot of harm for someone Absolutely. who doesn't know who to who 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 to belong Absolutely. to. Absolutely. So he will say, mm, I don't know. I'm British. I'm Bangladeshi. I'm French. I'm I'm from uh, Kenya. He doesn't know because he have something wrong. And this uh, this uh, issue, it's coming from both sides. It's not the country that is. Yeah, it's the community that you belong to. For instance, Tunisian community or African community. Well, I don't like to say African because there is many countries in Africa. Absolutely. It's not. Uh, yeah. Kenyan community, South African community, if you will, and the country that received you or where you are born. It's issue of both because your parents did not push you to get integrated to the country. No. And the country where you was born and grew up did not receive you properly. True. So it's it's an issue of both. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's easy to say, no, it's uh, the parents. Yeah, sure. The parents are, or the, the community are mistaken, but it's not only them. It's the the country, is, uh, as you said earlier, if you don't have enough resources, 
Yeah, How true. can you build uh, a gym or simple like a playground for kids? Simple thing. Absolutely. You can't. You can't go Absolutely. too far with it. Yeah. So, I, in my opinion, the foreign legion, in a ways, in ways, could be a good example of integration. In terms of the system that they. In have. terms of the system, of course. Yeah. It's a still an army. Yeah. It's so still an army, I I, we can't. <laughs> we can't. Yeah. Uh, we, it doesn't work. Well, it's the approach, really. It's but the approach. approach yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How powerful is diversity, in your opinion? Diversity is a reflection of the world. Mm -hmm. Diversity is important because it shapes not only what happens on a local scale, mm -hmm. but also on a global level as well. So diversity is very important. Um, but I think the issue about diversity, I was speaking to someone about this not long ago. So industries, employment, um, organizations are very conscious at the moment about mm. being diverse. Um, so there's words that are thrown out, equality, diversity, inclusion, mm -hmm. inclusive practice. And these are, I feel, tick box exercises to make sure that organizations are not taken to tribunal, mm -hmm. not taken to court for mm -hmm anything that's um that goes against the equality act 2010 so to speak but having said that in order to be diverse is to be uh, to have a level of cultural intelligence mm -hmm. that needs to develop and it's not just the cultural intelligence that needs to develop there's more but ignorance needs to go away to be diverse is to not have ignorance, I think. Yep. So diversity is extremely important, for sure. What defines our identity? Our identity is defined, I think, largely by two things. First, what we inherit mm -hmm. from those around us, friends, family, parents, siblings, and what we go on to discover mm -hmm. at a later date. So I think these two things define our identity, for sure. Okay. What advice would you give to someone who feels alienated? Hmm. Very interesting question. I think this alienation is far more apparent now because of COVID than mm -hmm. it ever has been before. I think if you're feeling alienated, take a step back reflect as an academic what i tend to do quite a lot is write mm -hmm. my thoughts down and then go back to them at a later date um surround yourself in good company and that doesn't need to be just people i think that needs to also be the environment um what you consume what you watch what you read how you go about your daily life but I think these days, alienation and mental health go quite hand in hand. There's a lot of mental health and well-being issues that individuals are facing. So I can't really give a particular example of what people should do. I've recently felt alienated, actually, by a particular um, experience. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I had to do is just take a step back and reflect on things write things down and to make sense of it at a later date. 
humans for the most part because there's no time humans tend to feel that they need to just address an issue there and then mm -hmm. that necessarily doesn't need to be the case for everything for some things maybe the things that start to affect you to the extent where you realize hang on a second i'm marginalized here i'm feeling like i'm outside of that circle mm -hmm. you need to make sense of yourself within that particular environment mm -hmm. before you go on to do something right yeah and this is why you shouldn't make a rash decision people say i think there's an um islamic line of when you're too happy don't promise anyone everything mm -hmm. um when you're angry don't take action and when you're sad don't make a life-changing decision mm -hmm. right yeah 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 makes sense and i think alienation can result to other things as well so you feel alienated isolated then you start feeling resentful mm -hmm. then you start feeling anger mm -hmm. vengeance and then it goes on to become something more deeper but you need to kind of call that nip it in the bud and the way to go about it for me personally is through some self-reflection does the industrial holocaust like you refer to it in your book affect our identity as a human and transform us into mere consumers so when i mentioned the industrial holocaust in my book i related it to thatcherism mm -hmm. and margaret thatcher mm -hmm. privatized a lot of industries a lot of services um, british telecommunications mm -hmm. british airways so many other major corporations and i think the deindustrialization did affect um, a generation of people and it will also affect this generation and potentially the next generation i think this country once had trade especially this city birmingham it was known as the city of 1000 trades mm -hmm. uh, industrialization was a big thing the industrial revolution was major um to the extent where you had slugging gangs and the peaky blinders working in industry mm -hmm. right it kind of became part of the city um and as such it became britain became the epicenter of europe in mm -hmm. many ways for certain things uh in terms of consumerism consumer culture that's becoming a big thing on a day-to-day -day basis um consumerism is very strange i don't know what to make make of it consumerism or consumer culture is quite toxic in many ways as well because i think it's a french term it was used by a sociologist it's called jouissance mm -hmm. and jouissance essentially in sociological terms means the excessive mm. consumption of something that ends up becoming harmful for you mm -hmm. right and it's interesting and i don't want to sound too uh, islamic about this but even in islam it's about even drinking too much water can be harmful for you yeah yeah, yeah. excess excess yeah right so that's anything yeah excess yeah. anything can be harmful and yeah, yeah in consumption right yeah so yeah some some would argue that we've become mere consumers um but again what's accelerated this 
So you've got deindustrialization, you've got privatization, but at the same time, you've got globalization. Mm. Globalization is essentially a business ideal which has made us become very interconnected through technology and trade. Mm-hmm. So once upon a time, if you're here in the UK and you want to speak to your family member in Tunisia, what do you do? You write a letter. Yeah. Because phone calls are too expensive, man. <laughs> International phone calls, 20 years ago, it's like, what, one pound a minute, two pound a yeah, minute? Yeah, yeah. It's going to be hard for you to speak to someone for 20 minutes. No, now yeah. what do you do? Skype, WhatsApp, video call, FaceTime. That's globalization. Yep. That's consumerism, mm. essentially. So, yeah, we do live in a consumer world. But look what's coming ahead. Black Friday. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody goes crazy on Black Friday. People don't need stuff. <laughs> like a friend of mine, he has, you know, he has a home. Um, on Black Friday last year, not last year, the year before, I think, he bought a doorbell. Well, why do you need a doorbell for? You live in a flat. Your flat has <laughs> intercom system. Nobody's going to use a doorbell. <laughs> you live upstairs on the fifth floor. Yeah, yeah. You have a telephone. If someone presses a buzzer from downstairs, you can let them in. Why do you need the doorbell? It's like, oh, it was £60 cheaper. I'm like, £60 <laughs> cheaper? You're not going to use the doorbell. It's consumerism. Yeah, Because it was cheap. He's been monitoring it for a long time. But all of a sudden, he feels the need to buy something. Choisance. It's become harmful for him because he doesn't really need it, right? Yeah, true. I totally agree. So then I spoke to him about it a few months ago. I said, what did you do with the doorbell? I gave it to my neighbor. And then I just couldn't (laughs) understand because his neighbor also lives in a flat. But he just wasted that money because of mere consumerism. Anyway. It's a gift. It's a good gift for the neighbor. Uh, Absolutely. Maybe (laughs) that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, In my opinion, because of lack of investment from our local governments and representatives in aspects some of us europeans from different backgrounds mainly from african and south asian roots are struggling to feel included in our country of birth or country of origin and that's when radicalism comes into play and fills in the blanks or the holes created because you feel that you don't belong to any community what are your thoughts on that? And what do you think we need to do in order to improve the situation? That's an interesting question. Um, a very complex question. Radicalism, yeah, I think there's an identity crisis with certain individuals. Especially if you look at here in the UK, some of the um, homegrown terrorists, if I may say, some of them are reverts, the mm-hmm. converts, um, whether it's the individuals that were involved in the 7-7 bombings back in 2005, or whether it's the individual that was involved in the first Westminster attack. Mm. These are um, converts, reverts, mm-hmm. right? And there's something to be said about identity in relation to crime generally, but then when it becomes an act of terrorism, it becomes far more serious, right? Mm -hmm. (sighs) Yes, I do think that the local governments can help, you know, but to what extent though? Because they can provide money 
to help that particular community. But then it's up to the community as well. No, at least understand how the community works. Yeah. You also, you, you, you're talking about how the, g- the government should understand how communities work. Of course. Yeah, but the gov- I think so. Governments are ignorant, though. They're ignorant. I don't know. I'm again, I'm not a specialist, but the way how I see it is I understand those communities are coming from different countries and different cultures yeah. most of the time. Unless, well, if we're Italian and moving to France, the culture is super similar. It's very similar. It's not the same, but it's very similar. So blending in in France as someone from Italian roots, it's easier. Okay. So let's say the government don't need to to d- work too hard to, let's say, make you blend in in that community. But if you are coming, for instance, from African background or Asian background, mm. even American yeah, background. Yeah, the government lack cultural literacy. They lack cultural intelligence. Um, and I think the times that they do integrate with community, it's like tokenistic. Yeah, I see. Gesture politics. Mm-hmm. Like, let's talk about the um, Euro 2020 championships. <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. It's, it's a painful subject, <laughs> especially if you're an England supporter. <laughs> but the England team decided to take the knee before kickoff. Mm-hmm. They decided to take the knee mm-hmm. in protest yep. of um, Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, right? And this has been ongoing for a while now in the Premier mm-hmm. League. Mm-hmm. Since last year, mm-hmm. since since the pandemic, and you've got some influential people that are behind this: Raheem Sterling, Marcus Rashford, great players. But then I remember during the championships, Pretty Patel turned around and said how those that don't want to take a knee, those that are booing, can do so because this is just gesture politics. This is the same Pretty Patel. That uh, I think a few games later or a week later, tweeted, "Come on, England, we're behind you. <laughs> uh, it's coming home or something like yeah. that." Right? You can't do that. Again, where's her cultural intelligence? Where's her cultural literacy? And she's coming from. She's British from a different background, so yeah, she, she's supposed to know. Well, Priti Patel's politics and her approach to immigration would mean that if she was to implement it. Her parents would have to go back home. That's <laughs> yeah, how apparently, strict, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's oh how my strict God. and severe yeah, her, her approaches are. She's not even grateful to her parents. No, so, so, so when you talk about <laughs> local government, I can understand what you're trying to say. That that investment's not there because you've got. It's not. S- a s- sorry to interrupt. You. It's not necessarily about money. No. no. Yeah. It's no, not forgive me for that. Money. No, I think I went wrong there. But no, 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 no. Of course. Uh, sorry, uh, my question wa- was not clear enough, but. No, I see what you're trying to say. It's yeah, about we have like we are human we are talking. Right? Yeah, we are talking now, right? You right. are British from different background. I'm French from different background. We are we never met before, and we are talking now. I mean, I don't understand how a government cannot, uh, I don't know, talk to the communities that are living within the. Well, this they think country. they do, though. This is the That's thing. another problem. So, so the central government. <laughs> The, w- the distribution is as follows. You've got the central government, you've got you know individuals that are also working on a regional level, mm-hmm. then on a local level, mm-hmm. then you've got the MPs, then you've got the councillors. Too, so so <laughs> Too many people. Too many people, right? Um, 
I think, uh, uh, you know, the saying is uh, too many chiefs, not enough Indians. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly right? that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the reality of the matter is there's, there's a lot of people, but not much is work is being done. I get that. I get where you're coming from. But again, in order for local initiatives to happen, central government needs to lead by example. Mm-hmm. So the point that I made about Priti Patel, yeah. you can't say that this is gesture politics and that no. fans can boo and that the knee is just, you know, this this kind of tokenistic approach. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then a week later, support the very people that are representing your country in a major tournament. No, it's unbelievable. And this is a global thing, by the way. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. This is not just the fact that only the British audience are watching. This is an international thing. Of course. I mean, plus her, she's rep- she represents Britain, Commonwealth country. I mean, imagine how many, I mean, people Absolutely, are watching, yeah. the, um, I mean, are following this at least. Yeah. Uh, what's your opinion on uh, Shamima Begum wanting to return to the UK? I think she should have been allowed to return back a long time ago. I think this is where the government have gone extremely wrong. We talked about ISIS previously. Yeah. And we talked about how they um, became far more aggressive following the Iraq invasion in 2003 by Western forces, of which includes the UK, of which includes the US. You know, whatever the US wanted at that time, the UK were more than happy to ally. Mm -hmm. So these are the things that we need to take into consideration. You can't just see this as a black and white binary thing. Nuance. Zeros and ones. There's a nuance to that. Yeah, of course. If we were to judge all 15-year-olds in this country based on the actions that they're doing right now, a lot of them would end up in jail Mm -hmm. or in trouble Mm -hmm. or many other things. You can't hold her responsible the way that this government is. And I think this is part of the problem. I think this government could work with Shamima Begum to understand where things went wrong because she was radicalized yeah she was brainwashed. for sure i mean for 15 years old how i mean you can't yeah. think straight at that at that age absolutely and she was radicalized and brainwashed in a way that it influenced her to leave this country and go to a co- another country and end up being abused uh, sexually physically and not knowing what to do. But again, I go back because it's, I mean, in my opinion, it's not only the government who is responsible of this. Uh, again, the community and the family are responsible of this. Yeah. Because again, cats and dogs can have kids as well. Mm. And they throw them away if they want to, or they take care of, care of it. But in my opinion, their parents, are the community, are responsible as the government. Because... It started somewhere. It started somewhere. Yeah. So we need to know from where. And yeah, but in my opinion, parents to and understand community that is to understand her. Of course. I to totally agree with that. To yeah, yeah, yeah. Be able to address the root causes of this matter. But I think Bangladesh went wrong as well. Of course. Because Bangladesh revoked her citizenship. This is illegal, no? I think I'm not too sure. I mean in my I think and I don't know uh, from my um, on my in my information She literally doesn't have um, yeah, yeah, yeah. a right of living in a particular country. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I think sh- it's illegal to for 
a human being to not have a citizenship. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure about that, but uh, I, w- I will. I will have a look at it. But I, I, I saw um, a social media comment a few days ago about Shalima Bacon because you know she recently appeared on TV. Yeah, I saw her recently. Yeah. She looks completely different to how she appeared on TV yeah, the first yeah, yeah. time around, and I'm not too sure what's been said to her to appear the way that she's appeared. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there's been some commentary about this, mm-hmm. and this one woman, white woman role, it's interesting um, that this case is unfolding the way it is. What would have been the case if Shamima Begum was Sarah Burroughs <laughs> and was white and was from a upper middle class background? Yeah, yeah Would yeah. we be treating her the same way? I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Yeah, absolutely. There are some countries in Europe where you can't, as a Muslim, get buried because there is no Muslim square in the cemetery. For instance, uh, many French Muslims from African backgrounds will almost automatically automatically, get sent to their country of origin uh, to get buried, knowing that most of the time they almost never set foot in their parents' country. Who do you think is to blame here? The community, the local council, or both? And how can you feel a connection with your country if you can't even be buried beneath its grounds? Wow. This is new information. <laughs> I know a lot of people, when I, yeah, because I asked around, you know, around me, and everyone was shocked. Sorry, go ahead. That's crazy. It is. One of my friends passed away when he was 16, okay? He was born and grew up in Calvi, Corsica, where I was born and grew up. There is no, there is, unless he got uh, buried in other squares, you know, there is no Muslim square where we, where we, where we grew up. So there is no, the easiest way to do it is to send him back to his family's route. Uh, I mean, yeah. And where was this? Tunisia. And did the government pay for this? The Tunisian government, so there is something, yes, not many people know about this, but uh, if you are a Tunisian citizen and died abroad, the Tunisian government take care of the burial and everything. But why can't the French government do it? That's another story. <laughs> wow. But you see what I mean? It's uh, it's insane for me. As if I don't care which religion are you are from. I don't care. It's yeah. not about this. If you are a believer for whatever, you, you, you believe on this microphone, okay? But for you, there is a central time, certain type of let's say traditions you have to follow if you are if you lived and grew up in that country yeah. and you can't die in that country for me how can you how can you how can you relate or or be attached to that country so i can only relate to my own experiences i live in northwest birmingham mm-hmm. and there's a cemetery very close to my house mm-hmm. And the plot or the square yeah. for the Muslim burial has yeah. been filled. Okay. It's maximum now. Okay. There's no more mu- Muslims that can be mm-hmm. buried mm-hmm. at that cemetery. There is some land that's still unused. Okay. But a lot of flooding happens in that area. Oh, okay. So yeah, the yeah. council have said you can't bury anyone there. That area, the soil has eroded and mm. it's, it's no longer good. So the next place is about about seven miles from my house. Okay. Now, here's the thing. So, I live in the northwest, mm-hmm. and then the other place is in another local area. Mm-hmm. 
okay? So it's geographically separated from the area that I live in, which means if I were to die tomorrow and be buried in the other cemetery, the plot, the burial, will have to be, will be given to me, but double the money. Wow. Because okay. I'm not from that local authority. I'm from a different local authority. Ah, okay. So for the residents in that community, they will be buried for the same price, mm-hmm. the advertised price. But anyone from another local authority, they'll have to pay double. But is it the same for anyone? Is it either the Jewish square oh, or Muslim square? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Ah, matter okay. So it's equal for everyone. So it's equal. Right? Yeah. It's equal. Yeah, yeah. And then there's an area um, in Birmingham called Solihull. Mm-hmm. And there's been some applications that have been put through for a, a Muslim burial square there. And it's been rejected several times. Mm-hmm. So the Muslim popula- population is nearby. But having said that, the council... And then there's been some allegations of discrimination and all mm. that. Kind of so I thought these problems were bad. Now I hear from you <laughs> <laughs> that some yeah. countries you having to fly people. Oh around. yeah, it's not only in France. I can tell you that, but this is my experience. I mean, that is it's insane. A, yeah, for me, I'm it's sorry, insane. I don't, I, I don't know what to say. I, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, of it's course, insane. it's a government responsibility because yeah. this individual has been a citizen yeah. for 30, 40 years. No, I mean, yeah, has been at least, yeah, for yeah, yeah, years. yeah. It doesn't matter, even a year. Uh, uh, no, has been contribute. Oh, it could be, yeah, even a year. It doesn't matter he's how long. Some sort of contribution. He's a citizen. I mean, he's a citizen. Yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. He's a citizen. Doesn't matter. And again, I blame the again the community because the community did not push for it. Because, for instance, in some areas of other f- areas of France, but you, but there can is. You, can, can you blame the community? Though, no, I can. Can you? Of course, I can because yeah. they're not pushing us enough with the local authorities. If you don't ask for something, no, no one will give so it to you. What's the problem with the community? Why can't the community ask? They d- they don't want to ask because for them, at least for this case, because the Tunisian government is taking care of it, so for them it's easier. So it's fine. I mean, they take care of it, and it's. Uh, and do, does the Tunisian government have? agreement with the french government about this is this yeah yeah every tunisian citizen relationship right yeah my my mom passed away uh, a few years ago almost 10 years ago and it was like this it was so the tunisian government took care of everything right so uh, for me it's a problem i mean of course my mom wanted to get buried in tunisia don't, don't get me wrong so in this case it's fine but for me if i don't want to get buried in tunisia for instance so it's either I go to Paris or other places in France where the local community was able to fight or let's say the government did his job to like uh, allow a Muslim uh, square in a cemetery, then I would be able to get buried like in a, let's say in a Muslim square. Otherwise, if I want a Muslim burial, yeah, absolutely. I can't. No, you can't. It's interesting because um, I don't know, I, I know the Human Rights Act vaguely but I, I, th- I think the reason why they're able to get away with it is because the Human Rights Act, one of the articles is the right to life. Yeah. But this person has died. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. We don't care. <laughs> yeah. That's it's sad. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it is. In 1769, Corsica became French, the year of Napoleon's birth. The family Bonaparte was part of the Tuscan nobility. Na- Napoleone di Bonaparte started to learn French at the age of nine and until he died, he never learned to spell properly. By some extremist standards, an immigrant became an emperor and embodies French culture 
and one of the most famous human being in history. How long do you think it will take us to see European leaders from African or South Asian backgrounds? Do you think Sadiq Khan's double election is a good sign that we are going in the right direction? I was surprised that Sadiq Khan has been re-elected. He's been re-elected, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was surprised. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I thought everybody hated him in London. Apparently not. He's doing a good job, though. Apparently, yes. Appa- I don't know. I, again, I'm not into politics much, but apparently yeah. he's doing he, a good he's job. He's from yeah. humble beginnings. Yeah, yeah, he um, is. Yeah, yeah. But at one point, he's been persecuted. because. Of oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Especially from, from the right wing. Yeah, f- for sure. Um, but he's been able to do quite a lot. Napoleon's story is quite interesting because in a chronological sense, because Napoleon was very interested in eradicating the dangerous class. <laughs> yes. Right? <laughs> so Napoleon, I, I studied Napoleon in school and I've studied Napoleon recently because the ecology, the ecology of crime, sorry, is the study of criminal activities that have taken place within a particular location. Mm-hmm. That started in France. Ah, okay. So people think it started in Chicago in 1920, the Chicago School of Criminology, but it mm-hmm. actually started in France. Okay. And the guy that started it off was a statistician, a mathemat- mathematician, and his name was Adolphe Quitelet. Mm-hmm. And he studied in Rennes University, and then he... Um, moved to France and during the Napoleonic era mm-hmm. it was all about getting rid of the dangerous class from urban communities and this guy used government information, government statistics, government data as well as a scientific approach to mm-hmm. see what is it that causes people to, to commit crimes so he used to look at their medical records, their social records, employability records, educational records to kind of build a database mm-hmm. So that was under the command of Napoleon and, 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 and mm. his, his doing. So I find it interesting because this is an individual, like you've said, who didn't have the education behind him, but was able to successfully, to a certain extent, dominate. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's one of the most popular uh, yeah, per- persona in history. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And uh, coming from a little island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, of he course, from a noble... He comments about women as well. He made some inflammatory comments about women and oh, society. Yeah, yeah. He and did a like lot of... So uh he, was <laughs> he, w- he was a very um, qu- like, you know, interesting character in that respect. But Sadiq Khan, I think, it is the shape of things to come. I think politics is definitely diversifying in that sense mm-hmm. um, but having said that it's um, a lot of the politics that's ongoing here in the UK can be related to Malcolm X's thesis mm-hmm. yeah, about how he talks about the northern wolf and beware of the individual that comes across as one of your own but having said that he is serving mm-hmm. the master mm-hmm. which is the government yeah, yeah, yeah. so I mean there's no need to go into the politics of an individual because it, it's that individual, right? You have to respect it. Yeah, of course. You don't need to agree with it, mm-hmm. but you have to respect it. And that, that comes with, you know, not being ignorant. Um, but yeah, good luck to Sadiq Khan. Yeah, good Be luck to him and any other 
European from different backgrounds because it's, I know we know the struggle. It's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. At as all. long as again, as long as long as they have the skill, that's the most important thing. It doesn't matter if you are white or green. It's the skill is the most important thing. But no, equal chances, equal no. chances for everyone. The key thing is we need to coexist. Of course. Yeah. It's as simple as, as that. As simple as that. I totally agree with you. This yeah. is why I say to even students that are new mm -hmm. to university education, because we're talking about crime, mm -hmm. you have to be mindful of the audience. Some of these students have probably experienced crime themselves. Mm -hmm. They've probably been victims of crime. They've probably had a family member that's been killed. So you have to approach discussions with caution mm -hmm. and sensitivity. Now, just an example, a white student would turn around and say, terrorism this and Muslim that, Yeah, yeah. right? And then you can have an Asian student, a Muslim, that could turn around and say, far right this and extremism that, uh, aiming towards the other student. Now, it's important to be critical. You have to be critical. And to be critical is to be thinking from both angles mm -hmm. so as to be able to put forward a persuasive argument mm -hmm. right but having said that you need to remain an element you need to also re retain that level of um respect in that yep. respect so i don't i don't i don't like even us for example we may differ on certain things i don't need to agree with you but i just need to respect the approach that you've taken of course yeah simple as that yeah, so yeah. That coexist again feeds into coexisting yeah no I totally agree with you yeah anything you want to add before we finish um I don't think there's much to add I just want to thank you for today <laughs> thank your team um thank you for having me uh it's been an education it's something definitely that um I've enjoyed doing uh thank you for promoting some of the work that I've done shamelessly uh, <laughs> I do have another book coming out soon I'm working on a third book on organized crime ah great yeah, yeah. so I'm working on a third book at the moment it's going to be a small book but it's going to be the basics of organized crime looking so forward to it yeah it's going to be with the mainstream publisher so the books that I've written so far with academic publishers mm, yeah, and yeah. one of the things that I don't like about academic publishing is the price it's just expensive <laughs> I so couldn't. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so my, my, the, the book that I co-authored, it's it's extortionate. Yeah, I, I didn't I set I the I price. I just want to say on your platform, yeah, yeah, yeah. since I'm here right now, <laughs> I don't set the prices. <laughs> but that second book is about 120 pounds. Yeah, I had a look at yeah, because I wanted to buy it. I personally wouldn't buy it myself. <laughs> I'm just joking, but it's so expensive. I wouldn't buy it. So I want to go with the mainstream publisher, someone that will sell the book for. A reasonable price. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, and still be able to make profit from their end. And I also want to appeal to a wider audience. So this, the language is very academic. I don't even want to say intellectual. Um, but I, it's very I mean, academic. of course, Sorry. as you can hear, I don't have like uh, I'm. <laughs> well, <laughs> English is not my native language. <laughs> but you know that that is a testament to your your knowledge and your background. The fact that you're able to speak fluent English and even though English isn't your background <laughs> that's a big deal <laughs> because not many people know more than one language 
know? Yeah, that's a, that's unfortunate because for me, the more language you know, the, the more cultural you know. Yeah, so that's part of your cultural yeah. intelligence. Yeah, yeah, I ho hope so. Let's see. I think it's experience. I would call it like that. <laughs> well, cultural experience it may be. So thank you very much for having me on your platform. It's much appreciated. Uh, Dr. Mohammed Rahman, thank you so much. I had an amazing time. I learned a lot from your experience and uh, uh, hope we can yeah i don't know maybe we do another episode yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely let's see the feedback that we yeah, get from let's this see one. let's see let's see um thank you thank you very much thank you very much everyone and uh, see you soon bye bye and it's a wrap <laughs>